This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features important conversations on health policy issues, as well as advocacy efforts to advance access and quality to musculoskeletal health care. Be sure to tune in on the third Tuesday of every month for our regular program. I'm your host, Doug Lundy, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. All right, y'all, welcome back to the Bone Beat Advocacy Podcast. This is Doug Lundy, and we've got a very interesting topic that's coming up because this will be covered both at Orthopedic Advocacy Week, that is the 1st through the 5th of August. And I need everybody to go on to the Academy webpage and sign up for the alerts issues so you can get all the information about this. One of the topics that we'll be discussing during Orthopedic Advocacy Week is the SAVE Act. I have two awesome speakers that are going to give us their take on this whole issue, which is specifically preventing violence in the healthcare workplace. Unfortunately, our profession and the nation at large has been facing this. And so we need to talk about this and legislation that's been introduced to the House regarding protections for healthcare workers in this incredible violent environment that some of us are working in at this point. So I have two very outstanding guests this morning. Both of them are friends of mine. So we have Dr. Julie Samora. Dr. Samora is the chair of the AOS Patient Safety Committee, which is a very important committee that helps us specifically in terms of developing content and different themes on patient safety. And then also my friend, Dr. Alfonso Mejia. Dr. Mejia is the chair-elect of the Board of Counselors of the AAOS. Dr. Mejia, Dr. Samora, welcome. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So thanks, y'all. So let's start off talking about this. So as we know, violence in the healthcare workplace is a timely topic just due to recent events. And as I stated, we're going to talk about this in the Orthopedic Advocacy Week. Julie, if I could start with you, what do you consider the definition of workplace violence? Yeah, so I will lean on OSHA and the Joint Commission, who both define workplace violence a little bit differently. So OSHA defines workplace violence as any act or threat of physical violence, harassment, intimidation, or other threatening disruptive behavior that occurs at the work site. Now, specifically for us in healthcare, the Joint Commission defines workplace violence as an act or threat occurring at the workplace that can include any of the following, verbal, nonverbal, written, or physical aggression, threatening, intimidating, harassing, or humiliating words or actions, bullying, sabotage, sexual harassment, physical assaults, or other behaviors of concern involving staff, licensed practitioners, patients, or visitors. So it's not just about gun violence. It can be even threatening behaviors as well. That's very good. I appreciate the formal definition of that. kind of helps frame what we're talking about. Alfonso, you've had an interesting history. A lot of folks don't know about with your work there in Chicago, if you can go into that for just a second. But also, Alfonso, are there settings or demographics where workplace violence is more likely to occur? So as far as my background, I think you're probably referring to the fact that I do a tactical emergency medical support, so a SWAT team. I'm a member of a multi-jurisdictional SWAT team in the Chicago suburbs that covers 900,000 lives. I'm a sworn police officer, and I've been doing that since 2000. So that's given me sort of a perspective. But in reference to the question, is there a particular demographic and setting? If when we think about urban or rural or suburban, there isn't. This is a national problem. But it does mean that there are differences between individual practice settings, and everyone has to look at their own 
practice as to evaluate where threats are coming from. But there isn't really a clear demographic as far as race of perpetrators. But there are specific types of perpetrators. Workplace violence perpetrators have been defined into four categories. And it's important to know that because some of the responses you're going to use for mitigation vary. So type one is relatively rare. This is just someone committing an act of violence. An example of this would be an armed robbery. So it's a crime of opportunity. Type two is a patient or a patient family member. That's 80% of workplace violence in the healthcare setting. That's the bulk. And that's why we have to have identification, awareness, and mitigation and de-escalation techniques available to our staff. Type three is a disgruntled worker, some one of your staff. And this is, again, goes to awareness. If someone in the staff is noticing someone's having a marked change in behavior, a marked change in attitude, and that needs to be reported to leadership as well. And type four is someone who doesn't necessarily have a relationship with this practice, but with an employed practice. And this is basically going to be a domestic violence spillover. If someone is having an issue of domestic violence, especially if they have a restraining order, it's important for them to give that information to security so that they can have some degree of control of that. Because this can be a setting where that person may not know where they are staying anymore if they've gone to a shelter or something like that, but they know where they work and they know when they work. Well, thank you. That's helpful to consider those different categories. It's really not that surprising, is it? We all work in a relatively high-stress environment for the patients. I mean, a lot of times we're delivering news they may not be all that receptive to, and certainly we all get complications. If you really look at it from that perspective, it's not too surprising that we are at risk, or am I just overplaying this? I don't think so. I think that hits the nail on the head. There's two components here. It's a high-risk environment, as far as bad news, not just as far as medical outcomes, but the financial cost, to how it disrupted this to people's lives. There's added stressors with the pandemic. There's been data tracking increases from the last couple of decades. There was an increase of 13% of violence overall from 2009 to 2011, another 86% increase from 2011 to 2018. And then during the pandemic, we saw a further increase. The other thing is that we couple that high-stress environment with an environment that has to have ready access for the patients. We talked about the fact that patients are the highest percentage of people performing this, and those are the people that we have to have coming into our facilities. So many of us are extremely aware of the unfortunate death of Dr. Preston Phillips. Dr. Phillips was an orthopedic surgeon who was viciously assaulted and murdered by one of the patients in his clinic. Dr. Samora, this whole issue is in many ways centric to the work of your committee and all the great things that y'all are doing over there. What do you consider are reasons for this uptick in violence? And is this to some degree unrecognized by both the public and by the fellowship of the AOS? Yeah, it's a good question, and I can't give you a definitive answer. I certainly think that there are a lot of mental issues at play, and we have obviously under treatment, and we're not resourced enough to have great mental health coverage for our whole country. I think that's one issue. I think another is, this has probably always been around, but now with social media and more coverage, I think it's becoming more apparent. Certainly during the pandemic, there was a global uptick everywhere with violence issues. But it's really unclear what the actual reason is for the uptick. And Dr. Um, Mejia, there seems to be a change in mindset, right? I mean, back when we first started, this was really considered to be part of the job. But 
there's kind of a trend and a change in that. Should we be thinking of this differently? Absolutely, we should be thinking about this differently. We talked about the increase, and I don't think it is just reporting. I think that there's a real increase, but what we do know is that we all know the real number of violence. We know, obviously, when someone is killed. But as far as all violence, there's a marked underreporting among nurses and doctors. And the reasons for underreporting are usually threefold. The first is that people sometimes think of it as just part of the job. The second is that oftentimes there's not a clear path for reporting. And that's something that we have to work with leadership in our individual practices to set up a clear path of how we report things, whether this is an incident report or how this is handled. And the third thing is that there has to be clear action when we do reporting. One of the key things as far as being able to mitigate the threat is to take reporting, to use that to evaluate your individual practice setting. This is where I'm having a problem. These are the actions I'm going to do and then have an iterative response to improve over time. Like all quality improvement, it has to be a circular. And one of the things specifically about implementing change is that it's important to take all things into account. Dr. Samora alluded that the definition of this is not just physical violence, it's also verbal violence. And there's been study through the VA system that showed that nurses who are subject to verbal violence were seven times more likely to have subsequently suffered physical violence from patients, not necessarily the same patients. So this may just be the setting or how interactions are happening, but verbal violence or threats is a predictor of future physical violence on this provider. And Dr. Samora, do you think that this is somehow related to the potential increase in physician burnout? It certainly can play a role because really, if you think about beyond the dangers of the physical harm, healthcare workers experience emotional harm, stress-related illnesses, anxiety. I do think burnout is real. If you have a fear every day of coming to the workplace, that would quickly lead to burnout. Okay. And as we said, during Orthopedic Advocacy Week, once again, y'all, 1st of August, the 5th of August, 2022, One of the bills that we're going to be encouraging on the legislative arm is H.R. 7961, which is the Save from Violence for Healthcare Employees Act. This was introduced by Congresswoman Madeline Dean, who's in the 4th District of Pennsylvania. It does a number of things. One thing is it really increases the penalties on anybody who commits violence or violent acts against healthcare workers. I want to read part of this right here. It says, whoever knowingly assaults or intimidates That goes back to what Julie was saying earlier. An individual employed by a hospital or other entity and interferes with the performance of the duties of such individual or limits the ability of such individual to perform such duties shall be fined under this title, imprisoned not more than 10 years. And then if they use a dangerous weapon or act that results in bodily harm, it's 20 years. So there's a significant uptick. We're taking this very seriously. And then another huge part of this bill is a grant program for hospital workforce safety and security. And this provides grants throughout the country to help try to find more cutting edge new ways to help protect us in our job right here. Currently, this sits in the House of Representatives, and we're going to advocate this during Orthopedic Advocacy Week. Any thoughts from you all regarding this bill? I think it's a great start. I think that having more severe penalties is important to give us tools to prosecute individuals. But I would also like to see research into best practice funding available in the future. There have been some grants in the past from NIOSH and CDC, but they've been small. As you said, Alfonso, this is a good start. 
What policies do you think can be enacted to help mitigate risks, both at the individual clinic level and by policymakers? Well, JCO has been considering requirements for workplace violence prevention, which I think should be universally adopted. Danny Guy and I had a really nice interview with Chief Lewis Deckmar from LaGrange, who's the chief of police there. And one of the things he talked about as far as for staff training is to consider doing what's called craze training, which is citizen response to active shooter events. So this is specifically regarding gun violence. But it's a really great place to start where they talk about really three forms of how to act in this environment, and it prepares you ahead of time. And so they use an acronym called AD. The first A is for avoiding conduct or basically running away. And then the D is deny, so prevent access, barricade, conceal. And then the final D is for defend. Defend yourself. Don't be submissive. So maybe craze training might be a good place to start in our clinics. Alfonso? Like we talked about, every clinic setting is different. And so I think that one way to look at it is to try to identify and teach people threat awareness, threat recognition, and threat response. So threat awareness would really go towards teaching staff how much of a threat this is, what kind of threats there are, how frequently this can be a problem. Threat recognition goes to actually identifying patients that can be problematic. As far as acronyms, there's a stamp where if you see someone who is staring, has increased tone, acting anxious, muttering to themselves, pacing, that's someone who probably needs to be de-escalated. And there should be training as far as de-escalation techniques as well. The threat response, things like Dr. Samora alluded to, which is basically a modification of run, hide, fight. But before that, Also, just taking a look at the physical setting, are doors that need to be locked, locked? Do we have key card access? Lighting has been shown to be a big factor as far as preventing crime and violence, especially towards parking structures or in the surrounding area. Do we have a panic system, a panic alarm? Do we know how to get law enforcement there? Some of our facilities are relatively large and don't have internal security. So having a pre-meeting with a law enforcement, this is the layout of our office, When we're calling for help, a lot of times we have weird acronyms, five northeast. Where is that? If they can have a map, all our towns provide the SWAT team with maps of the large areas, schools, hospitals, convention centers. So when there is a response, people know where to go. That's a great point, Dr. Mejia. One of the things I also learned in this interview is exactly what you said. If you are an office or a business property owner, you can preemptively contact your local law enforcement and request a threat vulnerability assessment or a TVA. Again, what you just described, but I had never heard it before. And essentially, it's an on-site interview or review of the physical plant by a trained officer to determine if there are any additional measures that could be employed to reduce workplace violence vulnerability, which I thought was a brilliant idea. And that's really pretty cool because there's no conflict of interest with that. They have nothing to sell, so they're really giving you good, honest feedback because they're the ones that will be responding. So do you think this may be underreported? Are our colleagues across the country being affected by both, Julie, as you said, these intimidating events that may not escalate all the way up to true violence or physical violence, let me put it that way? Without that, there's underreporting. So healthcare is a dangerous place. Four times more likely to have violence than other workplace settings. 75% of injuries resulting in loss of work days 
in the workplace setting are in healthcare. That's an enormous number. 75% of nearly 25,000 injuries a year. That's just the ones that are having enough of an injury to have workplace loss, to have days off work. But we talked about the fact that threats, verbal violence also is including this. And one of the areas of highest risk is the emergency department. So emergency department nurses and physicians have been polled. And nurses report about 30% of threats or 30% of everything that falls underneath the definition of violence. And physicians report 26%. So we have massive underreporting going on. And until we have accurate, trackable reporting, we can't see if the efforts we're doing are having a positive response. Yeah, and I think another important point that Chief Deckmar highlighted is that any threats of any form should be reported to local police. I certainly have never considered doing that before. But he basically said that any of these perpetrators have had a relationship with that business or that provider. It could be perhaps a domestic situation playing out at the workplace. It could be a termination issue. It could be an individual facing criminal charges. It could be an angry patient. And so any of these threats that have been communicated should lead to a heightened concern by all and requires universal awareness. If this person is on the campus or in your clinic or in the healthcare environment, that people should be aware of that. I know that in the Patient Safety Committee, y'all are doing a bunch of cool things. What kind of drew you to that and what other good things are y'all doing over there? Yeah. So right now, the hot topic is actually gun violence and gun safety. So that's where we're focusing our efforts right now. But certainly we're working with our partners in devices and biologics. We've done a lot of work in opioid safety. I would like to put a plug in. We do have a a workplace violence survey going out to the Academy membership in the near future. I think it's going to be launched next week. And this is really getting at the question you asked earlier, Dr. Lundy, as far as what is the current prevalence, which we all think is underreported. So this is going to be just a baseline. Where are we now? And then we can see if we've made improvements in the future. So I think it's really important for members to take less than five minutes to do the survey to figure out where we are right now, to figure out what we need to do. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm glad y'all are doing that. Thank you. And Dr. Samora, as we've all now in this supposed post-COVID phase, which has added significant stress on the entire environment, how do you feel that that has overall impacted or has that really caused an increase in this behavior? Yeah, there's data out there that we are at the highest levels of violence, threats, gun shootings that we've ever been. I live in Columbus, Ohio, and this is a pretty safe kind of white collar community. And throughout the pandemic, we've had more violence than we've ever had in our history. At our children's hospital, I'm working on a study with our traumatologists, we've had more gun shootings than we've ever had. So the data is real. We are definitely in an era of an uptick of violence across the country. Is there a diversity angle to this that we need to be aware of? Or what do you think about that, Julie? Yeah, I don't think in this specific situation that this is a diversity issue. I don't think it's a gender issue. I think each one of us, regardless of our race, ethnicity, gender, are at risk of these upticks of violence. So I personally don't think that's something that we need to focus on. I think we all are at risk. Alfonso, any thoughts? Yeah, there isn't conclusive evidence as far as demographics. And focusing on that can lead to inappropriate care for some and blindness to the threat from others. So it's important to just treat everyone equally. 
Wow, I think that this has been a fantastic interview with my two friends, Julie Samora and Alfonso Mejia, both orthopedic surgeons, both very accomplished in our discipline and very high up in the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and doing a lot of very strong work in our society and their respective societies as well. Remember, y'all, that the tools and additional resources of this are always found in the show notes. Once again, y'all, I want to iterate the importance of Orthopedic Advocacy Week. This is where the fellowship of the AOS can actually get heavily involved in orthopedic issues, specifically with political advocacy and regulatory affairs. And remember, this will be one of the topics that we use and we advocate in the legislative day before Congress in terms of putting out the importance of the SAVE Act and protecting healthcare employees. This is the 1st through the 5th of August. You got to go on the website to sign up. It's an easy sign up. We've got a really cool thing that we're doing this year where we're giving you the resources to help explain the value of orthopedic surgeons to your community, both as an economic generator and the tremendous things that we do in the community and raise our value with that. Once again, thank you very much to my guests, Dr. Alfonso Mejia and Dr. Julie Samora. Thanks, y'all. Privileged to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for having us. This is a very important topic, and I think that this is something we need to continue talking about on a regular basis. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal health care, please visit aaos.org forward slash the bone advocacy.